lecture in the LSE Space for Thought series, which celebrates the opening of this magnificent new building. My name is Arno Westad. I'm in the LSE International History Department and one of the directors of LSE Ideas, the LSE's new Center for International Affairs, Strategy and Diplomacy. And it's a very great pleasure for me to welcome Professor Wang Gongwu from the National University of Singapore as our speaker this evening. Uh, Professor Wang will be lecturing on the topic, the state between migration and sojourning, the China difference. And as I'm sure most of you will be aware, there is no better person to speak on this topic than Professor Wang. He is by far the world's foremost scholar of the Ho Chao of the Chinese abroad. Uh, he's been working on this for a very, very long time, published a set of incredibly influential books and articles. He has in many ways created the field of, of studying the Chinese diaspora. Um, uh, although that is not in, in no way the only uh, topic of Chinese history, or indeed international history, uh, that he's been working on. Um, Professor Wang is originally from Malaysia, or I should say Malaya, um, from Ipoh, uh, where he grew up. Uh, he worked um, for his PhD here in London. Um, he then went back to Malaya, served at the University of Malaya, both in Kuala Lumpur and in, in, in Singapore. Um, then to the Australian National University in Canberra, where he served for, for many years. And then uh, in the late 80s and in the 90s, he served as vice chancellor uh, at the University of Hong Kong during a very interesting time for that university right before the handover uh, back to China. And since he retired from that position, probably I would say the most active time in, in Professor Wang's uh, uh, inquiries have really begun. He's been working both in Australia and at the National University of Singapore, uh, producing a, an enormous number of influential uh, books and, and articles. But I wanted, just by way of introduction to a man who is among those I most admire within my profession, I wanted to go back a little bit to his, his origins. And I was looking this morning as I was preparing this Kung I was looking at the Festschrift that came out not, not too long ago, in which your work is being presented by some of your students and colleagues, and where there is also a fascinating interview with you in terms of your background and how you got into this particular field of study. And in it, uh, among other things, you're describing your, your childhood in in Malaya and how you were inspired by your parents to do the particular kind of history that you later came to make yours to the benefit of all of us. And in describing your relationship with your father in getting to understand what it meant to be an overseas Chinese, uh, you, you say the following um, to those who interviewed you for the festschrift. Professor Wang says, my father was a Hua Chao, not an immigrant who leaves home to live permanently outside. He came to Nanyang, the South Seas, Southeast Asia, with patriotic idealism, believing that it was his duty to educate the overseas Chinese. I was brought up as a Hua Chao, someone who was going to return to China one day. Although I was born and bred in Southeast Asia and eventually adopted a foreign citizenship, my cultural roots are Chinese. However, I cannot deny that I've gained immensely from living outside China. I have been fortunate to have been brought up in a tolerant, multicultural, and multiracial country like Malaya, and I've also benefited from living in Australia with its liberal intellectual environment. 
I've added many layers to my cultural identity and believe that these layers have enriched my life. This is true for most Chinese overseas, and we must never neglect this aspect of our identities. I think a better introduction to someone who has made the studies of the overseas Chinese and their various diasporas, his own, uh, cannot possibly be had. So, Gong Wu, both for me personally and for the LSE, it is a very great pleasure to welcome you here today and to listen to your lecture on the state between migration and sojourning, the China difference. Thank you, Professor Westard. It really is a great pleasure for me to come back to London. My wife and I lived many years in London and love it very much. We don't come here often enough, so each time we come, we, we find so much to enjoy. So much has changed, but nevertheless, there are also things which are the same, and we appreciate what is the same as well as what has changed. So we've enjoyed the last few days, beautiful weather and all that, and then to come to this brand new building, which I must confess I've never associated LSE with new buildings. <laughs> so this is a, a great moment for me to discover that even LSE can have a new building. But for, for me, the, the talk I want to give today uh, also related to what uh, Professor Westart said about my own life is that with migration, with the whole subject of migration, I've been very conscious of one aspect of it more than others, and that is the aspect of this, the state's role in migration, what governments do, and what the impact of government intervention or interference with uh, the ordinary process of migrations made by individuals uh, can make a big difference to what happens to communities of migrants later on. So when I talk about migration, I have this particular aspect in mind. Migration, of course, is a big word. It has many, many aspects to it, and I won't try to cover them uh, here. What I would like to focus on would be outward migration uh, from a sending country and inward migration to a receiving country, uh, often involving long distances, but essentially, in the background anyway, governments do get involved. But how much governments get involved varies quite considerably from time to time and from place to place. In this particular case, I brought in the question of sojourning because this actually tells us something about what governments can and cannot do to affect and influence the patterns of migration. In this particular case, the term itself, sojourning, is essentially a Chinese concept and it is the way the Chinese governments have used the word sojourning which has made a difference to the particular kind of migrations that Chinese have experienced. I've had considerable discussions with various people who are experts on migration who have tried to show that all migrations have a great deal in common and essentially we should look at migration as one particular phenomenon and we can compare amongst them. I, I agree. But nevertheless, I do think that in the case of the Chinese concept of sojourning, there's something else there which needs to be paid attention to. It is different from what we normally mean by migration. Sojourning, as the Chinese use it, means a temporary absence from home, a temporary decision to live abroad, and 
was never used in the past for Chinese overseas. <clears throat> in fact, the word itself uh, comes from a very specific use. The word is chiao. It means temporarily living somewhere other than your home. And it was used for within China, not for outside China. And it was first introduced from ancient times to describe people who were temporarily forced to leave their homes, but with every intention of returning. And the official use of the term started in the 4th century AD to describe communities of northern Chinese who were forced by invasions of various tribal confederations up in the north to move south to the Yangtze Valley. And when they did so, they were all considered to be Chaoji, temporarily living in the south, and the government, the official dynasty, the Jin dynasty, was determined that sooner or later they would be returning to the north and they could all go back. So the word Chao was used officially to identify those northern families who were forced to move south. And they, of course, referred essentially to upper-class elite families. It was not about a migration. There was no intent to migrate. It, every emphasis was upon return. In some ways, it is a bit like diaspora, which is the original idea of exile and return, except that it was not for very long, and very shortly after that, the whole matter was forgotten. These people who moved from North China to South China actually settled and did not return and became residents in uh, the area south of the Yangtze and further down to southern China. Now, that was the origin of it. Now, how did it come to apply to the 19th century to people who were doing different things outside of China, not within China? Now, that part is, to me, very important. That is the origin of why the Chinese attitude towards people outside China, Chinese people outside China, has always been somewhat different from everybody else's. No other government that I know of in history has paid as much attention to what they call their sojourners abroad. So the government's decision not to use or accept the common idea of labor migration or any particular variety of migration, but to find another word and to dig into its past, to find this word chow, to apply to what was happening in the 19th century was itself a government decision which made a difference. And let me explain a little further. I think we recognize that governments elsewhere too are involved in migration. But as I understand it, from ancient times, migration was essentially a voluntary process. Tribes moved, people moved for all sorts of reasons. The first, I think, government involvement in migration would be some kind of colonization. That's where governments like the city-states of Greece in, in the Mediterranean had colonies. And these colonies were encouraged by official uh, backing of some kind. Not, not necessarily very systematic, not necessarily a matter of, uh, of uh, national policy or anything like that, but certainly some government backing. That idea of colonization, of course, did have influence on how the West treated the idea of moving, moving from one place to another. And I think it is in, with that background in mind that the idea of colonists going from Britain to the United States, for example, or from the Iberian Peninsula 
to Central and South America. All that made sense because it was in the context of colonization, not in the colonization in the sense of imperialism, not at all. These were just your own people being encouraged to go and settle somewhere else and open up new territories with economic benefits and other uh, uh, advantages which your country itself can gain by your colonizing and moving somewhere else. That is where the uh, government inter, inter, uh, involvement in a migratory process, I think, was, is very clear. But nowhere else was that significant, because elsewhere, if you look at migration, it was always, at least in modern terms, it was always in terms of the receiving country being much more concerned, the government of the receiving country being much more concerned as to who was allowed to come in, who should not be allowed to come in, the setting up of immigration officials, office, immigration officers, controls at border points, all that was a matter of controlling inward migration, but not, not a great deal of effort about outward migration. It was really inward migration which was significant in the West, anyway. And in fact, the first example of this being a, a matter of systematic policy was that of the United States, because the United States is the first clear example of a modern nation state that was built upon migrants, or migrant peoples built a state. So I call it the first migrant state. Um, there were others, of course, later on, we find them as they became independent from the Spanish Empire. In the rest of uh, Latin America, there were also migrant states. But elsewhere, it would be in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, where you have very good examples of migrant states who are extremely sensitive about immigration and in fact set up very clear immigration policies, decisions about who can remain and who can't. So it was a receiving country that had policies about migration. Sending countries, on the whole, I, I'm not able to find any clear example of any systematic policy towards immigration. Some countries like to limit their people from prevent their people from moving out. So you can say there was some element of uh, uh, official intervention. Certainly, you can say the Chinese empire, for example, for centuries did not allow their people to go out. From the Ming dynasty onwards, for example, there was a specific policy against private trading overseas. Did not want people to move. Of course, it was not uh, very well uh, implemented, and uh, there was, they, they could not control that, and people did move. But at least there was a policy to keep people in, in, inside the country and not encourage movement outside. And that is the background to what I call the specific Chinese interest in this concept of sojourning. It was because the Chinese did not have a word for migration. Today we use the word yimin to translate migration. But the original meaning of yimin itself is interesting. The original meaning of yimin was governments deciding to move people from one area to another for two major reasons. One is for defense purposes. Yiming Shibian, you move people to go and hold, defend the borders of, the, of your country, to defend the country against the enemy. You move people for strategic reasons. Or you moved people for economic reasons because of famines, natural disasters, and economic depri deprivation in one area. You move them to another region where their food is more plentiful and uh, people can make a new, start a new life again. So the, the very concept of Yibin was a government decision to move people. It was never used for people deciding to move 
voluntarily from one place to another. So even from the beginning, the Chinese idea of moving people was by the government. The government was always involved, except that the government did it only within the country. There was never any question of moving people outside of the country. It was always within the country. So that the question of migration out of, out of China never happened. And certainly the government did not want to encourage that, and in fact, for a long time, did not allow it. So in that tradition of government intervention for moving only within the country and never outside, meant that they didn't have a word for all these thousands, hundreds of thousands of Chinese who were outside of China in the middle of the 19th century. The Chinese government had nothing to do with it. They all went voluntarily of trade, for purposes of trade, to look for jobs, for, for their livelihood, and they went out. And the governments of Ming and Qing dynasty paid very little attention. All they were concerned was, was not to let people move out wherever they could stop them. But when they couldn't stop them, the fact that they were out there, they couldn't return. Because if they returned, the Chinese government would want to know why, and most of them they considered to be either outlaws of one kind or the other, criminals, and people who were escaping from something or other from within China. And these policies were extremely uh, loosely administered, so people did actually move in quite, quite frequently, but nevertheless, the policy remained. And because of that policy, there was no word for emigration outside of the country or migration of outside of any kind, and certainly not, nothing, no word for immigrant, immigrant either. So without the word migration, what happened when in the 19th century they discovered, as they were opened up by the West after the Opium War, they discovered, as they negotiated with the Western powers, began to establish embassies, consulates, and so on, they discovered that there were lots of Chinese out there who were not registered in China. The Chinese knew nothing about them before, never cared for them, but nevertheless found that they were, they were out there. Many of them, particularly in Southeast Asia. Till this day, I think the reason why the Southeast Asians have the most Chinese abroad than anywhere else in the world is because it goes back a long, long way. It's been hundreds of years of migration over uh, during the Ming and Qing period, and by the middle of the 19th century, when there were other reasons why the West in their colonies in Southeast Asia needed labor, even more Chinese went out. And of course, at that time, once China was opened up, there were even less reason for governments to, or less possibility for the government to stop people from moving. And in the negotiations between China and the West, in the treaties that were drawn up, one of the major items of dispute was over this question of Chinese who were abroad, whether the Chinese government could be responsible in any way, or to what extent the people who imported Chinese labor from China were to be held responsible for the care of these Chinese laborers. Lots of dispute. In fact, uh, one of the most famous ones you all heard of is the Commission on the Chinese Labor in Cuba. It, it arose out of the fact that the international reports showed that these laborers were extremely badly treated, and as a result, a, an international commission was asked to look at the issue, and basically, the report shamed the Qing government into realizing that as a government, they were not looking after the Chinese, their Chinese citizens, their Chinese subjects, let's put it that way, the Qing subjects who were living <coughs> abroad. But you can see the dilemma. They had never acknowledged them in the first place. They didn't even know they were out there. 
in many cases. And once the treaties were signed and uh, labor was being recruited from China to work in these uh, Western plantations and mines and railways and so on elsewhere, and also there were other Chinese voluntarily, willingly going out for the, because of the gold rush in California, in Melbourne, in Victoria, in New Australia, and so on. All that was happening without the Chinese government being involved in any way, certainly not directly. So when the issue came up about how the government should look at these people, their consular officials reported from Singapore when they first set up a consular general in Singapore. They set one up in San Francisco. All these reports coming in were saying, there are lots of Chinese out here. What do we do? We'd register them, but there's many of them are born for generations out in these different parts. They are subjects, according to the British colonial officials and the Dutch colonial officials, they were subjects of the Dutch uh, East India Company or the Dutch government or the British government, and they had to obey the local laws. They were not subjects of the Chinese emperor. The dispute went on for quite a while. I won't go into the details of it, but the background is to see how and why the Chinese government then decided they had to find some way of identifying these people. Out of the depths of their history, from the records that I referred to from the fourth century onwards, there was this term Chiao, and that was picked up to describe them. I've been, I've been a bit puzzled. Why did they pick this up? Because Chiao actually meant initially, with movements from within the country. It was never applied outside. I discovered that they had to use the word, or they first used the word, to translate the word for foreign residents in China. Because of the treaties, particularly the Treaty of Beijing of uh, 1860, because of the treaties wanted formal recognition for, for foreign residents in China, in, in, the, in, in the treaty ports, as well as in Tianjin and Beijing, which at the end of that war, which the Chinese lost, the British and the French insisted on official recognition and extraterritoriality, of course, for these foreign residents. And in the treaties, in trying to work out the treaties, also with Japan and later on the United States as well, all these treaties had to include this clause about foreigners residing in China. And the Chinese found this word chow to use for them. They were chow, they were why chow, foreign temporarily resident in China. And I believe it was out of that that they decided that Chinese who are resident outside should be treated in exactly the same way as foreigners demanding to be treated, as, dem as they demanded to be treated in China. So the Chinese should also enjoy similar rights outside, at least nominally, because in fact there was, there was no way they could actually enforce that. Nevertheless, this recognition of Wai Chao foreigners residing temporarily in China became the basis on which they recognized the Chinese outside as temporarily residing outside. Whether they have any intention of returning to China is no longer relevant, although it was assumed that those who recently went out did actually have every intention of returning. And of course the Chinese themselves also talked in terms of being only leaving home for a while and ultimately sending money home to their relatives in the villages and ultimately to return to die when they made their fortune and, and, and so on. That was at least the part of the mythology of the Chinese residing overseas. But we know on the record how many Chinese actually were born and brought up 
from the 16th, 17th century onwards. Uh, many of them had done so. But the interesting thing is, and this is where the key, why the key difference is with, with the Chinese, and that is for the <coughs> Dutch territories, and this is a, a very specific reason, for the Dutch territories, which are largely Muslim, mainly Sumatra, Java, and Malacca, which is on the Malay Peninsula, and right across the lesser islands to the east of Java, they were mostly Muslims. And there the Chinese were encouraged not to assimilate. And the Chinese were not very keen to be Muslim anyway, for all sorts of other reasons which I shan't go into. But the Dutch encouraged them to remain Chinese to help the Dutch trade with China. And this was, at that point, very important to the Dutch East India Company. Trading with China was their major aim, and they tried many times to open up trade with China, which they failed. They were a little bit more successful in Japan, but they could never compete with the Portuguese in Macau, and they could never break in, not the way the British did in the 19th century, but that was much later. Even the British did not attempt to break into China that early. So between the 17th and 18th century, the Dutch were very interested in keeping their Chinese in the Dutch territories, keeping them as Chinese, serving them to some extent in the local trade, but also bearing in mind that these Chinese could help them in developing their trade with the Chinese mainland itself. I believe these very specific reasons encouraged a Chinese community to continue as Chinese and with no assimilation whatsoever with the uh, local peoples. Mind you, culturally there was some little bit of assimilation in the, in the food, in the women's dress, because there was intermarriage to some extent. But the preservation of their identity as Chinese was encouraged by the, the Dutch, and it remained the policy until the British came to Malacca and came to Singapore and continued basically with the policy, recognizing that these local-born, the technical term that they used, the Malay term they used was Pranakan, Pranakan that these local-born Chinese had a function in the larger trading empires of the Dutch and the British in the Malay world. It didn't apply. It didn't apply to areas where people, the natives, were Buddhists, or even in the Spanish Philippines, where they were Catholics. Because there, the Chinese simply intermarried, became Catholics, had Catholic families, and assimilated fairly quickly. Although they retained their Chinese identity to some extent, as uh, uh, mestizos, or the Chinese mestizos, and they were slightly better off in their position in the social scale in, with the Spanish rulers of the Philippines. Nevertheless, they were assimilating in every other way, assimilating at least to the Spanish via the Catholic Church. Whereas with the Dutch, that was not encouraged. There was no question of assimilating with the Dutch, and there was a question of being encouraged to remain Chinese and it was something the Chinese were quite happy to do because they were very reluctant to become Muslims and only applied to the Muslim world. You don't find this kind of Pranakan phenomenon in Thailand or in the main, on the mainland of Southeast Asia because there, with the Vietnamese or with the Burmese, the Chinese would intermarry and two or three generations later would become Vietnamese and Burmese. And even in, the Thailand, in Thailand, this was very often the case. It happened, uh, some changes occurred later on, which I, I won't go into in detail, but simply to say that the Pranakan phenomenon was essentially in the Malay world and began with the Dutch approach 
towards the Chinese traders' role for the Dutch East India Company. But from that emerged a community of Chinese whom the Chinese government in the 19th century discovered that they were still Chinese after centuries of living out in Southeast Asia. And the Chinese government was very impressed with that. They were impressed that these people wanted to be Chinese and stayed Chinese. And this encouraged the Chinese to use the word chow to apply even overseas. In other words, even when you're overseas, that you still want to be Chinese, therefore the word chow applied. You were only temporarily living abroad, and you really want to go back to China and retain your Chineseness and become Chinese back in, Chinese, in, in, in China when the opportunity arose and when, you, and when the occasion uh, came up. So I think it's that background which is very important. So the sergeanting comes out of that very specific thing. But the period where it made the difference, and this is why I find it very interesting, the government actually began to formulate a policy about this temporary residence. What to do with them? Well, how do you deal with them? There was a dispute, you remember I mentioned that, that the British and the Dutch said that these were local-born people were therefore subjects for the Dutch and the British, and as long as they were subjects of the British, under the post-Opium War treaties, when these Chinese went back to trade in Fujian or Guangdong or in Shanghai or any of the treaty ports, either on behalf of the British or of the, of the Dutch, they should be given, they should be recognized as being British or Dutch subjects and treated somewhat differently from other Chinese. That the Chinese government could not accept, and this dispute went on for quite some time. But it was partly in the, stimulated by that challenge that the Chinese had to formulate a policy about who these Chinese should be. The Chinese government found that it could not accept that these people were subjects of the British and the Dutch and would have special privileges as British and Dutch subjects when they were returned to China. So they finally compromised. I, and I won't go into the details of how they arrived at that. The compromise was that they would be Dutch and English subjects when they were out there, but when they come back to Guangdong and Fujian, they were Chinese subjects. That was a compromise. But it was a very uncomfortable compromise. Nobody was happy with it, least of all the Chinese themselves, uh, because they, they found that they had no privileges when they went back to Guangdong and Fujian, uh, even, if they were, even if they were returning home. Uh, although they were actually British subjects by birth. Again, I cut that story short, but simply to show that that period made the difference because between, roughly between 1880 and 1900, the Qing government worked out this policy about the Hua Chao. The term Hua Chao, as far as I can find out anyway, the fir first appearance of it was about in the 1880s. Uh, I found it in a, in a, in a couple of writings. The, the Chaoji was already used, as I mentioned earlier on, to Wai Chao, and then they said Chinese living abroad could also be described as Chaoji. But the technical term Hua Chao was not used until the 1880s. But from then onwards, that became more and more frequently referred to, and it became finally a technical term with political implications. Because by that time, the government then said, these are really our own people. They are Chinese subjects. We are responsible for them, and we should treat them as Chinese who are temporarily living abroad. The question of nationality was still unclear. You'll all recall that under the Qing dynasty, uh, there was no nationalism in China. After all, the rulers were Manchus, the subjects were Han, 
and there was a lot of uh, uh, feeling and tension about that, but it was not, not a comfortable position for either the Manchus or the Han Chinese by the 19th century, when the emergence of some kind of national consciousness was arising uh, among the Chinese, particularly among the Chinese overseas. And there's another reason for, for us, I think, to pay attention to that period. And the reason is that the Chinese overseas had encountered nationalism earlier than the Chinese in China. They were living among, after all, with the British and the Dutch. And I think we all would acknowledge that the Dutch were probably the first nation state, if I may call it that, when they gained their independence from the Spanish. Uh, and, they, and that was the first idea of breaking away from an empire to become a nation state. I think the Dutch were the first. And the consciousness of being a nation state arose from then onwards, uh, as you know, with the emergence of all the treaties between states. Eventually, the idea of a nation state was finally form formalized in something like the French Revolution, and then the British followed after that. The first nation state elsewhere, of course, was the United States. So in many ways, one thinks of the United States as a very modern, uh, very new thing. But in one aspect of it, it was actually very early. It was one of the first nation states of the modern kind because it, it broke away from Britain, just in a way similar to the Dutch breaking away from the Spanish. And that idea of a nation state was peculiar to these people in Western Europe. So the Chinese living under the Dutch and the English in Southeast Asia encountered the idea of a nation state, the idea of a nation earlier than any other Chinese. And they lived under them. And they were conscious as the idea grew that they were no longer just the East India Company of the Dutch and the English, but were actually governmental projects now taken over, in the case of the Dutch, by the Dutch government, in the case of the English, by 1833, by the British government. And from that time onwards, all those territories that were administered by the East India companies of the Dutch and the British had become actually part of the empires, the Dutch empire and the British empire. And my understanding of that empire is that it's a very different kind of empire from previous empires. All the previous empires that one can look at were fundamentally feudal empires. They were to do with monarchs, to do with feudal relationship between kings and other kings uh, of superior and inferior relationships, but very complex and lots of variation in different parts of the world, but they were feudal empires. But the Dutch, the British, the French were a new kind of empire. I know that uh, according to Lenin and Hobson and so on, we talk of a Lenin, uh, uh, imperialism as an extension of capitalism. Uh, but I don't accept that fully. I, of course, that capitalism had something to do with it. The Industrial Revolution had something to do with it. But I think what really characterized those empires were that they were based on nation states. The Dutch, the French, and the British as a nation state really came about in the 19th century. And therefore, you had national empires. Because behind it was a powerful, united, cohesive nation state. And the Chinese who lived, it, who lived in the Dutch and English territories <clears throat> in Southeast Asia were the first to encounter that experience of a nation state, a national empire ruling over them. And this, I think, aroused them to a sense of who they were. 
They were asked to be Chinese. They were encouraged to remain Chinese. And yet, there was no sense of a Chinese nationality because China itself was under Manchu rule. And to the southern Chinese, particularly to the natives of Guangdong and Fujian, uh, they never accepted the Manchus as Chinese. They are in the north, in northern Chinese may have a different view, but for Guangdong and Fujian particularly, uh, these Manchus are definitely alien uh, invaders of China, foreigners who ruled over China, very cruel to the Chinese in the 17th century when they first invaded and conquered China, and basically ruled China by force with Manchu garrisons spread all over the, uh, the country. So how could nationalism appear in China? There was just nothing. All these Chinese were loyal to, they were loyal to their villages, their clans, their genealogies, their kinship systems, their extended families, but they were never loyal, or maybe loyal, in a distant sort of way loyal to the emperor, but this emperor is not even Chinese in their eyes. So it's a very strange and strained and difficult relationship for which they had no name for. So the question of nationalism emerged amongst them. It is no accident that when Sun Yat-sen, as the first modern Chinese who became nationally conscious and had an idea of nationalism by being a student of British history in a British school, studied in Hong Kong, traveled overseas, and so on. And by the time he came to Southeast Asia, he was immediately recognized as a nationalist. And I think there's no accident that these Chinese who experience living under national empires encouraged and supported Sun Yat-sen in his national endeavors, in his efforts to drive the Manchus out. And that was how it was conceived. The initial nationalism was conceived in that way. And this was particularly valid and relevant for these people of Guangdong and Fujian, for whom the Manchus were never really accepted as being legitimate rulers of the Chinese people. So it is in that context that the Manchus found themselves in a very awkward position. Here they were, still the rulers of China, a Qing dynasty, discovering that there were all these Guangdong and Fujian people distributed around the Southeast Asia and, and gone to Australia, California, Hawaii, and Canada, and elsewhere. And legally, through treaty and through other efforts, having to recognize them as being Chinese subjects, and finding, as their officials, their consular and embassy officials were discovering, that these Chinese out there were not at all uh, supportive of the Qing dynasty. And many of them were actually harboring uh, rebellious ideas, which were certainly not welcome. So there was a kind of a sensitive period for the Qing to recognize how to deal with them. What they did was, very interesting, they decided to recognize them as much as possible, encouraging them to come invest, invest in China and offering them titles for making donations for good causes in China, giving them official titles. Official recognition was afforded with great ceremony. In fact, uh, some of the accounts are really quite interesting. If you look at the newspapers of, in, in Singapore and elsewhere, you find uh, when uh, one local Chinese businessman is greatly successful, made a major contribution to some famine in his hometown or somewhere else. Uh, the Qing government gives him a title, recognizes him as such, sends somebody to actually give him the title. And it's a good ceremony. And his status, local status, rises. 
and he's, he accepts the fact that he's the Qing's subject. And the Qing government thought that in this way, they could actually encourage all these Chinese overseas to become loyal to the Qing dynasty as well, to be genuinely Qing subjects, uh, imperial subjects. But actually, this was much more complicated because even while the Qing was doing this, the rich may have been reconciled to admit to acknowledging the Qing as their, as their emperor and the Manchus as their rulers, but the ordinary Chinese were not. On, on the contrary, they welcomed Sun Yat-sen when Sun Yat-sen came, came out to Southeast Asia. In fact, they did everywhere, whether they were in America or Australia where Sun Yat-sen's representatives went or in Japan or in Europe, wherever there were Chinese, there, and most of them came from the south because of the, the early treaty ports in Hong Kong were in the south, most of them from Guangdong and Fujian. They all were very ready to support someone like Sun Yat-sen, who was a nobody but at that point. He was just a, a doctor who never even practiced. He, was, he, was, he didn't uh, have any links with any kind of officialdom, very much in contrast to someone like Kang Yu-wei or Liang Qichao, who were high officials once before they were exiled abroad. Very different kind of backgrounds. And yet, for the ordinary people, it was Sun Yat-sen who, who said all the things that they felt. I like to think that this has something to do I think I said enough evidence, fragmentary, but enough evidence to show it has something to do with the fact that these Chinese were familiar with the idea of powerful nation states in Europe and how successful these nation states are and how important it is for someone to feel patriotic and nationalistic about your own nation and how they regretted the fact that China was under Manchu rule. Deep down, this was what I think motivated them to move so readily to support Sun Yat-sen. Now, that was a generation, 1880 to 1900. When I look at all the very well-known figures of, the, of, of Chinese origin of that date, you can see them going through this stage of change, of moving from being left out of China, being, having to, to accept being some kind of subject of the Dutch, the English, or some native ruler, whatever, and adapting and adjusting to life overseas gradually being acknowledged by the Qing court to begin with, and then by these revolutionary nationalists like Sun Yat-sen and his youthful supporters at the time, all young men who, just, who spread around, spreading the word that it is time for the Chinese to rise against the Manchus, it is time for the Chinese to regain their honor and pride against all these Western imperialists, who have been bullying the Chinese and defeating the Chinese armies, the Manchu armies, are obviously useless and hopeless and incapable of defending China's honor anymore. So that was the kind of mood in which all these people were responding. And I believe that that has something to do, very much to do with their experience of having met with successful Western nation states who have built up empires in their part of the world. And that stage, you can see them changing. But by the end of it all, by about 1900, the word Hua Chao begins to appear outside of China, not just in the official documents. For example, the first Hua Chao school that I'm able to find was actually in Yokohama, in Japan. But later on, Hua Chao schools were built everywhere. The government became more and more involved. Now, the interesting thing is, because the Manchu government couldn't be too involved because they could see that there was this rebellious 
atmosphere of rebellious groups building up outside of China. But of course, after 1912, the Manchu fell and the republic was set up with Sun Yat-sen as the first provisional president. And even though he didn't succeed for a long time and there was a period of what I call the warlord republic wasn't terribly successful, civil war in which finally the Guomindang appears in Nanjing in 1928 as the new government. But all through that time, the term Huachiao continues to be used by all the officials of the new Republic of China. And they did so because of the, they did so because of the connection with the rebellious revolutionary groups or the groups that supported the revolution out there. The term which some of you may have heard, Keming, uh, Zimu. They're the mother of revolution. Of course, a bit exaggerated. I don't think the Huacha were that, that influential in, in, in the success of the revolution. But nevertheless, that term was a powerful term used by all the Huacha thereafter for a long time. That they were somehow, owned, they had owned that revolution too. They had ownership because they had moved in and supported Sun Yat-sen from the beginning. And therefore, when it succeeded, they were very much part of it. And the other side, from the government, the republic government side, they too acknowledged that this was an important element in the politics of China thereafter. The political support from outside of China had some kind of impact on the legitimacy of the regime inside. It's a curious thing. I've never quite understood why it, it became uh, so important in the minds of the people. But if you look at the Kuomintang government down to the Chinese Communist Party, after 1949, when they competed for the support of the overseas Chinese with the, against the Kuomintang into the 1950s and 60s, behind it was still the idea that the Huachao were patriotic, loving, they loved China, and they are crucial to the legitimacy of the government. At least this is how it was portrayed. I don't know how much the leaders today think that, but the fact that all those organs that were created to establish that point about the Hua Chao being very closely tied to a successful revolution in China and, and contributing towards the success of the republics, of the two republics of China in 1912 and 1949, somehow that seemed to have survived all the political and ideological changes that have been occurring over the last few decades. It is quite extraordinary. But if you look at what the institutions are, from 1928 onwards, it became formalized. Actually, it started a bit earlier, but it became formalized as the Chao Wu a special committee that looked after all matters pertaining to the overseas Chinese. Very high up, very close to the center of power in Nanjing, and that continued to be so throughout the Kuomintang period and of course, it was broken up by the war. The Japanese uh, cut off the relationship when they took Southeast Asia. But it was restored very quickly after 1945. And what was interesting is, from day one in 1949, when the Chinese Communist Party won in Beijing, they set up the Chao Wuyunghui again. They re replicated it. Of course, now we call it Chao Ban. It was slightly different. Ban Shi Chu, they started that way. As a, and they had different... They, they, they were quite uncertain where to put it. Uh, sometimes under the State Council, sometimes in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, sometimes it's the independent autonomous unit, but they, while they were deciding how exactly to place it 
in the structure of power, they never failed to acknowledge its importance. It was certainly a major part of the Tongjanbu of the of the Communist Party itself. The party's Tongjanbu. Tongjan is uh, what's the tech? United Front. United Front. The United Front office were always interested in the overseas Chinese. Is to win over the overseas Chinese, and that legitimizes the regime. Because they knew that out there, there were a lot of overseas Chinese who were loyal to the Kuomintang and followed Chiang Kai-shek to Taiwan and accepted that legitimacy. So they had to win them over. Mind you, it wasn't all that difficult. Most Chinese were, by, by the 19, late 1950s, were pretty disillusioned with uh, Chiang Kai-shek's government in Taiwan and very ready to acknowledge the legitimacy of the People's Republic of China. There was not a question. But nevertheless, they continued. That policy continued, even down to this point. The circumstances, the need for the Chaoban in, in, in Beijing, and the survival of the Chaowu Wenhui in Taipei uh, remains puzzling to me. Why it is still, they still have so much resonance in, in, the, in, the, in the Chinese political structure. But I think the roots, and, I, and I, I'm keeping it very simple now, the roots trace back to its origins. Very special circumstances in which politicization of the overseas Chinese was made very early, and it was the only way of acknowledging that these Chinese were out there, could remain out there and still be Chinese, was to just describe them or call them all, without exception, that they were Hua Chao, no matter what they said. Even till this day, there's still some confusion. But on the whole, there's a, since about 1970s, there has been some revision in the terminology. And the Chaoban, for example, in Beijing, uh, acknowledges that Hua Chao could only be used for those who were still uh, citizens uh, of the People's Republic of China, carrying the PRC passport. Only they could be, strictly speaking, described as Hua Chao. Whereas those who are citizens of other countries can only be described as Hai Wai Hua Ren or Wai Ji Hua Ren or a number of terms for that. But Hua Ren was used to apply to those who were not a Hua Chao. They are actually completely outside of China. They are not Chinese citizens anymore. But that only came about in the 1970s, during the Cultural Revolution. In fact, that's another story I won't go into, what happened to the, all the Hua Chao who went back to China and what happened to them during the Cultural Revolution. But that reminds me only of one other point which I'll make before I come to a conclusion. And that is that with the PRC, they went even further than the Kuomintang in one respect. The Kuomintang had a Chao Wenhui to set up policies, educational policies, cultural policies, economic policies, to make sure that all these Chinese out there will be loyal to the regime and will contribute towards the regime's welfare and development. And they, they, they were consistent, even after they went to Taiwan. For the PRC, it, they encountered one extra problem, a new problem which the Kuomintang had not experienced. And that was that they came about in 1949 when decolonization had, had begun in Southeast Asia. And we de with decolonization, all these new nation states that were formerly colonial states were now nationalists, led by local native nationalists who wanted to know what the Chinese were doing there, if they were still Chinese subjects. And the Chinese there were, were then forced to make the Chinese overseas, living in these territories which had been previously British and Dutch territories, and, or, or American in, this, in, in the case of the Philippines, had to make up their minds 
whether they will settle and become local citizens or, in fact, declare their uh, allegiance to the People's Republic of China or the Republic of China in Taiwan. That choice was made more and more important by the end of the 1950s. And the Chinese government realized, both in Taiwan and in, the, in Beijing, in the case of Taiwan, it didn't matter very much because they could see that they were losing the allegiance of these Chinese anyway. But the PRC, on the other hand, was gaining their allegiance, found that they were embarrassed by this. This is one of the ramifications, as it were, of a, what had been more or less a successful policy of reconciling Chinese subjects outside to be loyal to China. But one of the ramifications was that this created great tensions between these Chinese who were loyal to China and got involved in Chinese politics and the local nationalists who began to see them as a potential threat to their national aspirations. And in that context, the PRC government had to make a decision. What to do with these Chinese? So Zhou Enlai in the Bandung Conference made a, a proclamation. He said, he went to Indonesia, he said to the Indonesian Chinese, he said, those of you who want to settle in this country, by all means do so, but you must be loyal to your country of adoption. You will no longer be Chinese subjects. You may be culturally Chinese, you may identify in other ways with China, but you're no longer citizens of China, and the People's Republic of China will no longer be your protector. That's not your country anymore. He said this in much more general terms than I've done, but the implications are very clear. The Indonesian government welcomed it because in terms of the new international relations between China and the independent countries, newly independent countries of Southeast Asia, this was a subject of great sensitivity. And the Chinese government, in order to win the support of these new countries, had to, in a way, make this, their position very clear about where they stood on the overseas Chinese. And that decision was made by the PRC, not by the ROC. The ROC never changed their policy. The PRC changed their policy. But it was only a proclamation. It was, it was never no legal status to what they were said, only a policy matter. But nevertheless, that was the basis on which the Indonesian governments and the other governments in the Philippines and Malaysia and Thailand and elsewhere could actually allow the Chinese to become citizens of their country and become subjects of, a, of, a, of the new nations, become new nationals of the new nations. That, the process began from then onwards. It was, in fact, not until as late as 1980s, partly because of the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution uh, distracted the Chinese government from this subject for a long time. And in any case, the return Chinese, and I, I, I come back to that, that was a new phenomenon. Under the Guomindang, there was no such thing. People came back to China whenever they wanted to. There was no particular policy about that. With the PRC, they had to have this policy because they had encouraged the Chinese to make a choice. And those Chinese who chose to be Chinese and citizens of the People's Republic of China, when they got into trouble and when they were forced out of their countries, particularly in Indonesia, but to some extent also in Malaysia and Singapore, when they got into trouble with their local authorities and wanted to return to China, the Chinese had actually consciously adopt them, readopt them, and find homes for them in China. And that became the basis of a policy of what they call returned overseas Chinese. Guichao, a very new phenomenon. Again, I know of no other government that has systematically built this up, but it, was, it followed logically from the Hua Chao policy, which they had. 
that there will ultimately be a Guiqiao, and there will also be the Chaojuan, in other words, the families of those who have been Huajiao were also treated specially. Again, the ramifications of it are too, too broad for me to go into. But the point I want to make is the state has played a conscious role in creating this category <clears throat> called sojourners, Chinese, patriots, loyal to China, and then sifting out those who wanted to remain and those who wanted to return to China. And if they returned to China, their status in China had to be defined in terms of return overseas Chinese with special privileges and privileges for their families in China because they had loyally returned as patriotic Chinese to China. All these had to be worked out bureaucratically, so to speak, and, we, and po policies were carefully worked out to make sure that these people could resettle in China and, and be absorbed in the Chinese community after that. It didn't quite work out like that, and I'm not going to go into the details now. So that's, I, I think I made the point that I want to make, which is the state made the difference. The state's involvement was extremely close, and it made it necessary for the overseas Chinese to make decisions with that, the state at the, in the background, the Chinese state, and then all other states in which they are involved, in different groups of Chinese are involved. With the state in the background, they had to make their decisions, whether to be migrants or sojourners. And it's in that context that i like to just come to some very simple conclusions, certainly some con concluding comments on this. First of all, we have normally accepted that the norm in migration is the perspective of the receiving nation, because the bulk of the literature on migration that you can find almost anywhere, in any language, is from the point of view of the receiving nation. It's about how you control immigration, who you let in, who you don't let in, how you sift them out, and how you can send them back when, and when necessary. So the, the literature is essentially from the receiving nation. On the whole, governments don't interfere with sending out on the whole. Very few do. But the Chinese is the exception. So I like to see the, the two extremes. The United States model is a classic one. All the others receiving nations, in a way, one way or the other, have been influenced by the way the United States has worked out its immigration policies. I, I lived in Australia for a long time, and I could see where the influences were. Similarly, in Canada, the influence of the American model of how to deal with immigrants was the, was, the, was, was the inspiration. That's one extreme of the US model of the receiving nation. The Chinese model, as I think, is the other extreme of the sending the country, the model of the sending country. And I think it is alone there, because I look around, other countries are involved here and there in small ways, but not in the systematic way, in the politicized way, in in impact also on culture, education, economic connections, and as you all know, the involvement in Chinese investment by overseas Chinese in China during the recent economic reform period, all these have been highlighted by many others. So the norm then is actually of one type of state intervention or state policy towards migration, but not enough attention, I think, has been given to the others. But I believe, and this is why I'm leading to it, what I'm leading to, when states focus on migration, 
The state focuses on the result of migration, the other end, the receiving end, whether these migrants become settlers, become loyal subjects, and ultimately assimilate and become just like the native peoples among whom they have settled. That's the focus. Where China is concerned, China calls it sojourning, and then the stress is on the tentative side, the tentative, the temporariness, the postponing of a decision whether to settle and whether to return. So they, the option of settling or returning is kept open as long as possible when you use this policy of sojourning, as contrasted with the emphasis upon immigration, settling, and assimilation. For 150 years, the Chinese policy towards sojourning, whether they always called it that or not, has been seen as being relatively successful by some people. In particular, the economic development of the last 30 years, you find lots of literature referring to the fact that the Chinese are very lucky. They were helped by a lot of overseas Chinese investing in China, helping in China, China in one way or the other. Uh, mind you, some of the literature is not very accurate because they include Taiwan as overseas Chinese, they include Hong Kong, and, stuff, and they're not really overseas Chinese, that, at least not in the term I'm using to mean outward migration to territories other than that are not Chinese. But nevertheless, that's how it is seen, perceived as being a policy that has its successes. So much so that I've heard it said, uh, the Russians regret the fact that their emigres did not do this kind of thing that the Chinese did for China. Well, that's because the Russians didn't have a sojourning policy, whereas the Chinese had a systematic policy of keeping in touch with those sojourners and acknowledging their role in Chinese affairs. And I've heard other people talk about the need to look at the Chinese model again, and this has happened in the Philippines. It's happened in Japan. The, the Japanese use of Rechiao the Koreans use Han Xiao, or, or, and the uh, Vietnamese use Yue Xiao. They've used the same word. Of course, they, they have the same origins in, in the Chinese language. But the, these words have been used for Japan, Korea, and, and Vietnam. And while not as systematic and not rooted so deeply as in the case of China, nevertheless, they have been very useful for them in encouraging their Vietnamese Koreans or Japanese outside to invest back in their own countries. So of course, Japan doesn't need it, and Korea now doesn't need it so much. But the Vietnamese still do, so it's a, it's a very active factor in Vietnamese policy towards uh, the Viet, Viet Chau. India, on the other hand, you, you all have heard that within the last few, last decade or so, decade and a half, the Indian government has formally recognized the role, the potential role of overseas Indians, or non-resident Indians, as they call them, that they have a role and they should be encouraged to do what the Chinese have done for China in China's economic development of the last 30 years. And that has been an issue. Now, I mention this just to say that in the eyes of some, these Chinese policies of, of treating sojourners and allowing for options of settling or return in that way have been seen as successful and that, and that it has even helped China in some very important ways, especially in the last, especially the last 30 years. My final point of simply is this. Now that there, we have globalization on a scale unknown in the past, globalization may well favor sojourning 
in the future rather than migration. Not of the old type of migration. Labor migration is now out. There's no labor migration. There's only labor contracts. Contract movements of people who have to be returned after the end of the contract. All, all governments now apply that. Labor migration as such, as a phenomenon, I think is disappearing. But movements of people are occurring at a different level, in different professions, at different uh, times, and different ways of uh, moving. Moving with capital, moving with money, moving at high levels of professional skills and expertise. In this globalization process, this question of sojourning, redefine and rephrase in a different way perhaps than the Chinese had done, may well be much more important than migration in the future. And if this kind of sojourning should become more widespread and the Chinese model should move to the center as much as the American model had been the norm in the past, if the Chinese model moves into the center, what impact would it have on the future nation state in a much more globalized world? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Wang. A wonderful and stimulating lecture and a superb overview of, of your field of, of study. I think these are all right, the microphone, so it's possible to hear at the back, yeah? All right, so I don't put them up a little bit. Can we have a little bit of time for discussion uh, and for, for questions and answers? I, I just wanted to start with one question, Professor Wang, which really goes to some of the stuff that I'm working on myself at the moment. I'm, I'm writing a history of China's role in international affairs in a fairly long time span, going back to the, to the mid-18th century. And what I'm doing right now is to look at the 1911-1912 revolution and the role that overseas Chinese played, both in terms of ideas and in terms of financial support, a whole range of issues for China's transformation then. And I was wondering whether we could transport that over to our own day and age in terms of change within China. We had a visitor from the Baijiao from the Chinese Foreign Ministry recently, a young diplomat, who wrote uh, his dissertation here at LSE on China's soft power within East and Southeast Asia, mainly on the lack of soft power, basically. Um, we had a very interesting discussion that came out of it. And one of the questions he was asking was this. Does the existence of fairly large Chinese, ethnically Chinese communities outside China, particularly in Southeast Asia, help or hinder the kind of soft power that China could develop towards these areas? Because on the face of it, it seems very good. You know, it's very good to have a fairly large number of people who are culturally and, and ethnically close to you in, 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 in countries that, that surround your own uh, area uh, in terms of the, the power of the state. Then on the other hand, of course, it also cuts off those who are not representatives. They are seen, the, the division is between Chinese culture being something for those of Chinese origins, and other culture, very often Western culture, being, being for the others. Now I wonder how you, how you see that if you think about China's future, because there is a general idea that if China's influence as a state, not as a culture, not as a society, but as a state, would grow in these, in these regions, uh, it would have to base itself to some extent of soft power. In other words, how does one internationalize soft power with so many Chinese around to represent it locally? 
it is a very serious problem. The point I, I probably did not emphasize enough in the lecture because of limited time is to say that the Chinese policies actually have changed quite a bit in the last 150 years. On the surface, it looks the same, mm. but actually internally it has changed a lot. Even as the Chinese began to understand international system, the relations between states, as they have relationship with Britain and Holland, for example, in Southeast Asia or with America, in the Philippines, uh, they have adjusted and adapted accordingly. The secret of this sardining kind of policy that the Chinese had is also because it's very pragmatic. Mm. It strength lies in it. It's very pragmatic. It's actually very variable. Mm. And the Chinese allow for negotiations on, on specific cases. It's not a rigid, mm. absolute position. In a way, the migration norm is very rigid because migration norm says you enter, you become a citizen, mm. That's it, and you have to adapt to all the laws of the country. And there's, you know, and if you return, there are pen penalties. Yeah. And it's an absolute position. Sardinia is not an absolute position. It's very vague. It actually uh, is, uh, in fact, it's, it's almost impossible to define who yeah. is and who is not a Sardinia, if you want to be strict about it. And the Chinese are very happy mm. to leave it in that vague position and give them room to uh, maneuver in the open. Now, that meant that from the late 19th century onwards to this day, they have actually modified their position as the international scene changes and China's position changes vis-a-vis -vis different countries. For example, in the 19th century, they were weak dealing with Western mm. power, and then very weak dealing with Japanese power. Under those circumstances, they used the Hua Chao in a very different way, yes. very aggressive way, the hard power, using them to fight, to help fight imperialism, Japanese or Western imperialism, encouraging them in that, in that act. But China remained, of course, and then China was isolated for, during the PRC, first 30 years of China, PRC, was isolated. They couldn't help this PR, the overseas Chinese anyway, because most of these overseas Chinese outside were in areas that were supporting the capitalists on the other side. They were non-communist countries. So if the Chinese in non-communist countries uh, act differently, there was nothing the Chinese could do. So the nominal terminology of Chao was, uh, it was not something that you could actually implement, but they kept it. And that's the strength of it is that it's flexible. It actually, it has no fixed position. It depends on the circumstances. That, that's my understanding of it. So that it went through the whole of the Cultural Revolution period, for example, still keeping the same terminology, while in fact, in reality, Nothing was happening that was in any way like the old Hachal policy. But yet, after 1978, with the economic uh, development, something else happens. This time it is not politics, politics out, not even culture, economics. Mm. Economic investment, mm. professional skills, technological know-how, all these were welcome. Come back, come back and do, do your bit, as it were. You can carry any passport you like. But as long as you come back, you're, you're, you're a good Chinese because you're, you're acknowledging your links with China and you're willing to be helpful, you're willing to come and give advice or offer uh, investment funds and so on. So you can see how flexible. So if you look at the changes, I don't think the Chinese have a very rigid policy mm -hmm. on those Chinese. Mm -hmm. They are actually very flexible. Mm -hmm. Two things illustrate this. Something almost impossible in the, for a long time. 
was the fact that when the Indonesian uh, riots to happened in 1998, mm. the Chinese government said nothing. Mm. Because all those Chinese who were raped or killed or their property burned were Indonesian citizens. And the Chinese kept to the, in a way, very legalistic position that they are Indonesian citizens, the Chinese government cannot intervene in any way. So they're very, that's very straight. Now, something that they could, the Kuomintang government couldn't do, because the Kuomintang government, ROC, was still tied up to the, with the old system. Had they stuck to their old policy, they would have had to say something, and that would have been very harmful yeah, exactly. to their relations with Indonesia. And that, as you know, that the, the Indonesian relationship is very important to China, still is very important to China. And they're not going to harm that relationship for the sake of Indonesian citizens of Chinese extraction, as it were. That's got nothing to do with it. Now, this is an example. That has changed. This could not have happened much earlier on. The next one, a simple example. I was just thinking about it the other day. When you had the earthquake in L'Aquila in, in Italy, so a few Chinese were there. I didn't realize they were Chinese up in the, up in the mountains behind Rome in L'Aquila. But there were some Chinese, and the Chinese embassy sent an official out there to look after the Chinese, because they were Chinese citizens. So very proper, correct. They were Chinese citizens, but the fact is that you look at it that way. There are now far more Chinese spread out over far more countries than ever in the whole history, in the past. So the Chinese have to adopt a very different and very flexible policy, but be very clear legalistically. Those who are citizens of China and those who are not, at least they've, they've stuck to that. This is just an illustration of how far they've changed. So that, I think, answers to some extent to your question. Absolutely. And, and it is a fascinating subject for study. Is this international or global China that has been developing for the last, really for the last 150 years? It's no more important than ever. Other questions? Yes, please. Please. Yeah. please. Yeah, um, thank you uh, for your point. Yeah, very interesting point. I'm generated from such a complex history and the subject. So um, my question is, um, how do you understand um, some overseas Chinese in Taiwan do not want to return to China and would like to, I mean, um, become an independent uh, country. And the second question is, how do you, um, did you consider the, the Tibetan as a Chao Bao? Mm. Maybe called that, yeah. Chao Bao or Chao? Oh, uh, but they are Chinese citizens, right? Chao Zhu and back in China or Chao Bao? I mean, Tibetan, I mean, I mean, how do you consider the Tibetan? Yeah, it's a Chao Bao, it's all Chinese citizens, but some um, Tibetan uh, do not want to return to China. Thank okay. you. Thank I, you. I think we have to get the terminologies right here, but that's, that's why <laughs> Professor Wang is here to help us. Would we let me have a quick quick response to that? And the two, I mean, the, the first one really about Taiwanese yeah, strict, strictly, strictly speaking, I would not include Taiwanese as overseas Chinese. <laughs> but that that's already betrays my position on that one, that Taiwan is part of China. Therefore, the people of China, the two people of Taiwan came from China, they lived there, but it's part of China, it was a province of China. So I, I, I have to accept that official position anyway. I don't deny, I don't uh, question that official position. If that position is accepted, and I think the Kuomintang is also committed to that position, that they are, after all, the Republic of China, then they're not overseas Chinese. In fact, the Republic of China has a Chao Wu for overseas Chinese. 
And under Chen Shui-bian, they had a big argument about whether the Chao Wenhui should only apply to Tai Chao <laughs> and not the other Chao. All those Hua Chao should not be included, only Tai Chao. So you can see that Taiwan is also having a bit of a problem with terminology. They would have to accuse <laughs> So I, I would say that, that I can't understand, I, I answer that question the way you framed it because it, it, it would not apply. It's not, it's not part of the story. It's a different story. It's part of a civil war and all the other consequences which are much more complex, of course. But for your second one about Tibetans and others, the interesting thing is that why did they use the word Hua? Uh, today, PRC uses Han for Han, but they never used the word Han for the Chinese overseas. Right from the beginning, it was called Hua Chao. And Hua in those days, was, because it was used in the 19th century, Hua included Manchus. Yeah. Man Han is also Hua. That means all the people who lived under the Qing dynasty were Hua. At least that was how it was used. And they still use it today. So in other words, from the official, and again, the state definition, Hua includes everybody. Of all the 55, 56 nationalities of China come under the word Hua. They're not Han. And that, so if you're a Tibetan or Mongol, whatever, if you are actually a citizen of China, theoretically, you're still a Hua foreigner if you're living outside, theoretically. Whether the Tibetans accept it or not, that's a different matter. That's a completely different matter. But one last point I want to make. Among the changes that occurred, there was also an interesting change in terminology, which I, th I think I should note. Hua Chao was no longer used. Many, many people now just became Huaren. But they retained the word Hua Chao because there were still some old people who did not give up their citizenship in places remote places now, not, not in Southeast Asia so much as perhaps in America. Old people in America, Canada, and Australia who are La Hua Chao. And they, they like the term Hua Chao. They, they call themselves Hua Chao. And so the Chinese, the Chao Wenhui, the Chao Ban in Beijing, acknowledges them as the few remaining Hua Chao. But what about the young Chinese who are going out since 1978? The, the hundreds of thousands have gone out as students and said, what to do with them? They're not Hua Chao. They can't use it. So they had to find a new term. They call it Xin Yimin. <laughs> now, not all of them are Xin Yimin, because many have kept their PRC citizenship and so on. But Xin Yimin is another vague term. Because Xin Yimin is, because Yimin, as I mentioned to you earlier on, Yimin didn't really exist. They have applied the word to translate the word migrant. But that's a new word. It has no connotations. So you can use it very freely to include all of them, whether they intend to become citizens of other countries or not, is not neither here nor there. Until such time as you declare yourself, as it were, you are still Qin Yimin, which allows you to go back to China anytime you like, at least, at least the principle behind it. So you can see that even the terminology has shifted. There's no Hua Chao now, almost none. It's Qin Yimin, but very awkward who to describe the Qin Yimin. I've asked the Chaoban people to say, who, who do you include as Xin Yimin? And they really have a lot of difficulty because it depends on whether they want to acknowledge you or not as a Xin Yimin. For example, I was very struck by the way they define this question of Liu Xuesheng because that's another frame, a temporary stage. You are not always a Liu Xuesheng. At some point or other, you stop being a Liu Xuesheng and you have to be something else. 
least when you graduate from here. <laughs> so you, you, yes, it's only a, it's actually a bit like Warschau. It's a temporary stage. You either move back or you move forwards from Lucius, and so it's only a temporary thing. But that is an uh, it's an area which is sufficiently vague for them to say, Lucius is not yet a CEB. Somehow or other, at some point when you graduate and you still don't go back, then you become a CEB. But you're not a Warschau either. So I'm afraid uh, we're going to be very confused for a long, long time with all these terms. Can I turn to one of my uh, favorite former uh, uh, Chilean, now, now declared, Professor Chan? <laughs> yeah. this. Uh, this is a, a fascinating uh, speech, and it has covered many important uh, topics. And I have two questions. And first, about um, this legitimacy issue because I think it is extremely important. The Chinese modern nation state is very different from other nation states in the sense that it really is based upon a collapsed empire. It is in terms of territorial size, in terms of population composition, and also in terms of mythology, narrative, memory, symbols, norms. It's almost on the basis of empire, the same empire. Although, you know, it's a Qing Empire, which is very different in many senses from previous Chinese empires. Therefore, this legitimacy issue is so important because both PRC and ROC and various Chinese governments are so eager to try to claim legitimacy. And then there's a, you have raised an extremely important you know, point about why overseas Chinese is defined in that context. So I would like you to further you know, elaborate upon this legitimacy issue and also to what extent it is related to the specific format of the Chinese modern state. That's one thing. And secondly, you know, because I myself, the identity you know, question is indeed what kind of soft power we represent. I'm a US citizen. Am I representing US soft power or Chinese soft power? Or both, you know, but what is the nature of this identity crisis, sense of crisis, or sense of confusion? And I would like to get your opinion because you are, in this sense, not just a scholar, but also an insider and outsider in different senses. So your wisdom, wisdom will be extremely helpful. I have to say your second question is too difficult for me, but I try. I have a go. But the first, the first question of legitimacy, actually, I believe can be, can be pinned down much more specifically. It really has to do with the existence of the ROC. I mean, if the ROC did not exist, this particular pressure about legitimacy wouldn't arise. Because as long as there's an ROC, there's a question mark about it. Even though we all acknowledge that PRC is there and ROC cannot do anything about it, that the fact is that there is an ROC, the potential two Chinas, two suns in the sky, as it were, is sort of uncomfortable and something that uh, they cannot fully reconcile themselves with. The legitimacy issue comes from that. But more specifically, it comes from the fact that this is so important in the United States. It's actually important nowhere else in the world. But in the United States, those Chinese who are pro-ROC and the Chinese who are pro-PRC are very significant. And in terms of Sino-US relations, the most important relationship for China 
The fact that the ROC and PRC have separate identities in the United States raises a question of legitimacy. It has a very specific uh, aspect to it. As you live in the United States, I think you'll be more familiar than I am because I'm, I, I don't live there, but I can see it. It's, it's a constant problem. Nowhere else in the world does it matter. But in the United States, it's crucial to the Chinese that one day the United States will say there's only one China and it's the People's Republic of China. So that is what legitimacy, why it is such an issue. That's for the question, first question. For the second one, it's so much more difficult because I, I don't believe that uh, the Chinese have any possibility of exercising hard power anywhere, not in the new world. Once upon a time, in the great old days, when all the neighbors were very weak and so on, they were the regional power. They, they could exercise hard if they wanted to. On the whole, as you know, the Confucians were continually advising not to. Please don't uh, you know, tell the emperors not to do it. And that was very wise advice. And on the whole, the emperors took that advice. But that world has changed now. And I don't think the Chinese can exercise hard power, or will be allowed to exercise hard power anymore. So the only power they can exercise is, in fact, some kind of soft power. There's one question mark, and I have difficulty with that one. Many people say, what about economic power? Is that hard power or soft power? Now, I've always associated hard power with political and military power. Maybe I'm wrong, but I've, I've defined it that way. I don't know whether Joseph Nye defines it quite that way or not, but I think he, he uses, he's thinking primarily strategically of political and military power. But economic power is, is an in-between area because it is possible to exercise economic power. Mm. And the Chinese may well be content with that because, and I think this comes from a very significant experience for the Chinese, mm. and that is to see what happened to Japan. Mm. China and Japan have much in common, whether they admit it or not. They have many concepts of political legitimacy, political rights, and so on, which are political culture, which have very much in common. They don't like to admit it, but I think they have much in common. And they watched the, China, the Japanese go through a period of nationalism and national empire, national empire building, imperialism, which failed drastically for the Japanese. And then they saw the Japanese rise again with economic power. No more military, without an army, without any kind of military force, it exerted maximum economic power in the, in the whole region, in fact, in the whole world as the second economic power. I think the Chinese could aspire to that. The lesson to learn is never follow, don't follow the Japan part one, but the Japan part two is something that they could learn from. And I suspect that if they talk about soft power today, then this is what they have in mind. Because the other kind of soft power is much, much more complicated. I can't see, for example, the Chinese offering a set of cultural values now which can supersede the popular culture that the whole world embraces, which is originating in the West but no longer belongs to the West, whether it's popular culture in Japan or Korea, which are very local and Korean, but with very attractive culture. It has been influenced by the West, influenced by many other factors. They're now attractive to all the young generations almost anywhere. It has a kind of universal appeal. Mm. And I think at most the Chinese can go in the same direction. But to have something distinctive drawn from China's own ancient civilization, 
to replace that, I cannot see that. So I think the future of Chinese soft power, there's only one way in which they could exercise some soft power, if you call it soft power, and that's economic power. And that, I think, is happening. And we can see this, this unavoidable, the fact that they are doing so well economically. And as long as they continue to do well economically, then the neighborhood, even the Japanese and the Koreans, must they dislike it, have to accept certain relationship which can be described as some kind of soft power. It, it, has no, it, it is not as threatening as any other kind of power, but it still is power. Because don't forget, soft power is still power. We're still talking about power. I'm not sure that's a word that people like anyway. Not, not other people's power. <laughs> Professor Wang, it has been a great pleasure to listen to you here tonight and, and, and to have a discussion afterwards. I know of few other people, if any, who can talk about issues and power and culture and make them both meaningful towards each other in a sense that denigrates none of them. And I, I think that is a, a, a fantastic hallmark of your work overall, the way it has developed through your long and successful scholarly career. So it's been a great pleasure to have you here. Look forward to seeing you at LSC soon again. Look forward to seeing you in your region soon again as well. Thank you very much.